Hey everyone, welcome to episode 54 of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Ted Oakley, managing partner and founder of Oxbow Advisors. Ted has more than 40 years of experience in advising high net worth clients in the investment industry. We kick today's conversation off talking about Tuesday morning's CPI report and some of the implications there. We delve into markets, the economy, the macro picture, which includes this idea that we are still coming off a super bubble. Everything was pretty much in that super bubble and why it's going to take a long time to get back to a more normalized investing environment. We also talk about why Ted thinks markets are not priced correctly and why his firm has a 50% liquidity position. This was a wide ranging conversation with Ted. I really enjoyed it and picked up some pearls of wisdom along the way. And I think you will too. And if you're new to listening to the show, welcome. Great to have you here. I hope you enjoy it. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for your support. And if you all don't mind, please leave a review and a rating um, and share the show if you enjoy it. Thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed this one. Ted Oakley, managing partner and founder of Oxbow Advisors. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Ted. Thank you, Julia, for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. Not only is it Valentine's Day, we also got the CPI report this morning, and I am planning to release this episode today. So I was hoping, Ted, we could start with the CPI, your reaction to the report that came out, and possibly some of the implications that you're thinking about there. Well, you know, Julia, I think people probably thought we were going to really wind down on consumer prices and didn't quite work out that way. If you look at energy and shelter, they stayed really firm. In fact, it went up a little bit. And I think that probably threw people a little bit. And and we've thought this all along, uh, that it wouldn't just come tumbling down uh, the inflation rate, that it would it would come down, yes, over time, but it would stay at, you know, maybe five to six through the spring. Uh, and maybe this year not go below four or something like that, which meant, you know, the hangover from that is that everybody wanting the Fed to uh, turn tail and give them what they want, probably not going to happen. And at least in our opinion, but, you know, we, we never know for sure, but it looks that way. Yeah. So it looks that way. You mentioned um, like a lot of folks, they want the Fed to to turn um, a lot of folks, probably, but there are probably folks, a lot of market participants out there that um, would like to see not only pause, but um, rate cuts and, and watch asset prices go back. I, I don't know um, if that would even happen, but I guess when you see a report like this and um, more persistent inflation, like inflation staying still at elevated levels, do you think that means the Fed will continue to hike? Like, how do you think it kind of plays into what the Fed might do? Well, I, I think the thing that people probably underestimate, it seems at least to us, and we don't know anything, but it seems to us that uh, he is serious, uh, Jay Powell, about really getting inflation down. And he is so serious that He's not going to like just, you know, wink at it and say, okay, we're going to go back to where we were. I don't think that's going to happen this time. I think he doesn't want that to be his legacy. And so you'll notice after he got formally appointed and approved, then he, then he went on this tough run. And I think, I think he'll stay on it till he sees what he can get to. Um, unfortunately for a lot of people, you know, we have a lot of people in the industry have only been around for 15 years 
So they've never really seen a time when rates stayed up and what to do with it. And so they're just expecting it to go back like it was the last 10 years or so. And that's probably never going to happen again, in our opinion. Uh, I'm not saying it can happen, but we would be surprised. That's a, okay. That's a really good point. Cause you mentioned um, a lot of folks out there um, have only been in the business for 15 years. Like, gosh, I, I think about myself. I'm not an investor by any means, but I'm 35 and I've, I feel like sometimes I feel like, wow, I've been doing this a long time, but I really haven't. You've been doing this for decades. Um, let's explore that a bit about what folks might be missing just because of their experience, their frame of reference. What are some of those things that you think they should be thinking about? Well, one of the things you have to do in investing, and, and I have to do it too, by the way, and it's a, it's a strong uh, pull on you is your biases. So if you're biased to what's been going on just in your career, and I'll give you a really good example of for me, okay? I was, I came in the industry, I went to New York City, and uh, and what happened was for seven or eight years, uh, the Dow Jones would just go up and down 25%. It never went anywhere. The S&P the same way. And interest rates kept going up and up and up. So every time you bought a bond, Three months later, that bond price was lower than it was when you bought it. And so you had to learn that you're going to have to keep your maturities really short to manage that. It's, it, it, something happens. However, when, when Henry Coppin came in in 82 and said, hey, you know, it's over. The Fed's going to lower interest rates from now on. It took people like me and a lot of others, you know, that didn't have the experience of being around lower rates to a while, a year or two to say, you know, uh, I think that's right. And so you you have to get over sort of what your experiences have been. And I think one of the things about people today, and I, I ran the number, gave a speech here last month, and one of the slides that our people had pulled up was that, I don't have the exact number, but something like um, 42, 43% of the people in the industry today are less than 39 years old. Meaning, if you just think, put the math to it, you know, that's been their experience see, with this low Fed. So they'll have to basically re-engineer their thought process here because you're going to have to get into a point where you realize that, hey, things are probably more, more volatile the next 10 years. You got to look at commodities. You got to start thinking about keeping your maturity shorter. A lot of things like that enter in, and you can't just do this plug-and-play routine where you say, well, I'll buy 60% stock exchange-traded funds, 40% bonds. Everything will work out. Um, I doubt if that does that way the next 10 years. That's just a guess, but I I, I would be surprised. That, that's an interesting point too. I want to um, just, uh, you know, tease that out a little bit more because um, this is such valuable information and insight and it's so helpful for all of us too. And um, even if it's just a guess, it's still another idea out there in the marketplace for folks to certainly think about. And you kind of just mentioned like this plug and play routine that that might not play out. Can we... Um, can we explore that a little bit further? I'd love to hear more of uh, your thinking there. Well, you know, the 60-40 uh, are really called, you know, risk trade, risk parity trade came about because number one, it was easy, okay? And bonds had kept going lower in yield and higher in price. And so it was fitting that you could put that in there together and that would work with, with the stocks doing the same thing. I think people forget that the, with the wind has really been at their back. So actually the last 40 years in terms of the bond market, but certainly the last 14 in terms of the stock market. And so 
they started putting two and two together. And it was an easy way for people that didn't really know a lot about investing. When I say that, I don't mean that as a disparaging remark. But what happens is a lot of people in the industry today, they don't understand single stocks, single bonds. Uh, that's all we buy at Oxbow. But, you know, we understand balance sheet, income statements, that sort of thing. But it was easier to do just to say, okay, we'll do 60% stock, 40% bonds. And it really did work out. Okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But always in investing, there always becomes a change. And you have to notice that change. And if you don't notice it, that's where you typically get hurt. And I think people are not realizing today that more than likely, you're going to be in a different kind of period. I'm not saying you don't own bonds, but you're probably going to have to own them shorter. Why not? I can get, you know, four and three quarters for a one-year treasury. So things like that change the atmosphere of it. And I, I believe that that's the changes that are coming. And it typically takes people that haven't been around as long. It takes them a long time to say, you know what? We got to make an adjustment, but it, you're you're further into it when they do. Mm -hmm. That's okay. This is, again, this is so great. Um, I want to just uh, pick a few more things out because again, love, love the ideas that are coming up here. Um, you mentioned uh, like, you all, you, you pick single stocks and bonds. Um, and I, and I want to get to that too, but, um, for folks, they might want to own bonds on like, I guess, uh, on a, a shorter term basis. Can, can you help me? Um, and it might seem like a naive question. Is that because of, you have to be more mindful of like duration, interest rate sensitivity? Why, um, why would you want, like, help me understand why, um, like own them for shorter, uh, shorter amounts of time. Well, I think, I think Julia, you hit the right uh, word there when you said interest rate sensitivity. What it is, is that if we go into a period, and I think we very well could, where volatility in interest rates reflects to volatility in the bond price. And I think most people have been used to the last 20, 30, 40 years that they never got hurt in their bonds. Bonds couldn't lose any money for them. And so if you go into a period like last year, 22, and they look up and all of a sudden the, you know, the 10-year treasury is down 18%, they're like, wow, I didn't think that would happen with bonds. And if you go forward, let's say, um, you know, they, the rates stay high, then they go lower. And so the bonds get a move on the upside and then they have to come back and raise them. Right. You know, you have a Fed that's really intent on keeping things, you know, tight. Then, then it'll be volatile. And when it's volatile, the only way you can survive, in my opinion, maybe people have a different opinion, I, I'm sure, but the only way you survive that is to keep your maturity short. And this is why. If I have one, two, three, and four-year bonds, use that as an example, that means that every year I'm repricing, no matter what the interest rate is. And the second year I reprice again. And so I keep I keep rolling it, but see, I'm I'm on the curve. It can't hurt me. Now it can go down, and I don't get as much interest. That's a fact. But um, when you look back at the bond market, for example, in say twenty and twenty one, and twenty two, and you put those three together, you really didn't make much money when you look right at it. Because what happened is you had you had one good year, and then you had a year that's so so, and then you had a really bad year, and, and so. I think people have to start to realize that the only way you can guard against 
extreme volatility is to be able to reprice your assets all the time. And that's what we do with the short maturities. Uh, do you think that stock picking, is it, do you think it's a lost art? No, I don't. I don't think it's a lost art. You can, you know, what, what you have to look at, and I think people forget about this, that all businesses, regardless of whether it's people in the real estate, people in private business, people in oil and gas, technology, stocks, bonds, whatever, it all comes back to cash flow. So if you can determine really high cash flow, strictly free cash flow after capital spending and everything, then you have a real great asset. And even though it, 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 when you go out and choose that, I think that's what will be important the next 10 to 15 years. You're going to have to know what can produce that free cash flow because the averages themselves, and I'll give you a good example, 1966 to 1983 and 2000 to 2012, the S&P made 1% compounded. So I always tell people that because we had a lot of people that started and we, we came into our offices in say 2015 and they just started in the market in January of 2000. And by the time they got to, two, it took till 2013 just to break even because it went up and down, up and down. And I think people forget about that. And that is, um, that's something that single stocks can offset that. I'll put it that way. That's a good point. Um, well, normally I start the episode with the big picture question and I didn't do that this time, but I do kind of want to shift and um, just kind of zoom out and talk about the macro, the big picture for you, if you could kind of frame up what that looks like for you today. Well, it's certainly a tough one. Um, I think anybody that says that they've got a really good handle on the next five to 10 years is a whole lot better than we are. But I, I, I think what we, what we think about the most is this, and that is you have these extreme high levels of debt all over the world, you know, the U.S. included, obviously. And so that's going to preclude a lot of things that might normally go back to these normal cycles. I think that's part of it that, that's out there. I do think that coming off of the super bubble we were in uh, by the time we got to 2021, that what happened is everything was in the super bubble. And so it takes a long time to ring that out, not just one year, but it takes a long time to really get back to some sort of normalized investing atmosphere. So what happens in that sort of thing is, at least for us in the macro, is that we we feel like we if you're going to really go through this macro the right way over the next five to 10, 15 years, number one, you know, you have uh, you you have a lot going on with with the East in terms of China, Russia, India, uh, Saudis, you know, they're working on their own currency right now. That's going to have an impact for sure. And then secondly, you know, we we may or may not be as competitive in the U.S. I hope we are. But if we are able to be because of technology and productivity, I don't think it will be uh, for any other reason. But um, so when we're looking at the macro right now, we feel like that we've got another period to go here of uncertainty. Now, you could say, do we think markets are priced correctly? We don't happen to think they are. And, and it's not because so much of the S&P. It's just because we run a lot of screens on individual companies, and they're just not cheap enough for us to want to start owning them or owning more than we already own. We own stocks, but we're about 50% liquid. 
And so there'll come a point, I mean, when they get cheap enough. Um, and I think that's farther ahead of us. I think the two things that will drive the market this year will be recession, which would be lower margins for companies and then lower earnings for companies. Last year was interest rates. This year, I think it'll be the economy. We'll see if it works out that way. And if it doesn't, you know, we'll make an adjustment because um, sometimes we have to adjust. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about, um, the, again, a lot of great stuff in here. Um, you all are 50% liquid. Um, can you kind of help contextualize that? Is that higher than you usually are? Cause I do know that y'all were, um, you, you did, uh, you were, you had more liquidity. Well, I don't know if it was more than now, but you did get some, you were liquid in 2022 or I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it was heading into 2022. Um, can you kind of frame up like, yeah, I guess a bit of the context there on the um, your liquidity position. Sure. Uh, well, we have three strategies, and one is a really short-term bond strategy, and then we have a what we call a high-income strategy. It doesn't own bonds; it owns a lot of other things. I mean, they all pay between say five and ten percent on the cash flow. But then we have just a full stock. All of those strategies we felt like would be under pressure in twenty-two. So as we came through twenty-one, when we would have something that came overpriced, we would turn it. And we got up to probably 20, 25% liquid by the time we got to the third quarter of 21. And then as we moved in the fourth quarter and the early 22, uh, we basically moved into, uh, you know, by March, we were at, you know, over 50% in all of those categories. And not, not because trying to time the market, it just, things were too expensive. Um, people always think, well, you're trying to time the market. We're not really, we're really trying to time the value. If you want to get right down to it, uh, if the value is correct, we'll buy it. Even when we buy right now, we had something that was really great. Uh, we do have some things that are in what we call value mode. You, know, you look at the gold miners, that kind of thing. Uh, but um, in general, just in general, we we we're most of the companies we follow in the screens we use. They're just not at a point where we we're going to add a lot of them. Do you think that you'll see a point where they will get cheap enough? And what do you think might ultimately drive that? I think the thing, uh, Julia, that drives that will be uh, the earnings. I think what people, you know, we came into, by the time we got to mid-December of 22, you know, the average earning estimate uh, for the S&P for, for 23 was 230 bucks or so for the S&P. We always thought it'd come in at 200 or less. Uh, now it's down to like 221 and some are like 218. See, we think that'll keep on coming down because you think about it at a 4,100 to say S&P 500, if you're doing, you know, 200, 210 on the earnings, it's expensive. It's still 20, 21 times, which is not cheap under any measurement. And so for that to be measured correctly, you know, you'd have to put yourself down, uh, you know, another 10 or 15% from here to get into a zone, I think, where a lot of companies would get cheaper. Yeah. What? Do you, let me ask you this. Like, what do you, what do you make of like the markets um, so far this year? What is your assessment there? Well, we felt like it was, you know, what happened this year was everything that got beat up badly last year rallied. They got it beat up so badly. Now you just take a look at the FANG stock, look at all of the MEM yeah, stocks, yeah. look at all the companies that don't make any money. I mean, I went through a couple of days ago and looked at, I know, you know, probably 20 companies that make no money, no revenue, they're public. They bounce too. And, uh, 
in in Bitcoin, Ethereum, they all bounced. All the stuff last year, they got wiped out, bounced, but um, ARC. And what I tell people is, look, um, if you go down 60% and you rally 20%, you only rallied eight points <laughs> out of that 60. So don't, don't get too confused with it because uh, when you have something as bad as last year, they, they, again, I think it's just a bounce, a lot of short covering, stuff like that, but it's a very lousy rally. We don't see it in a lot of the good companies. You think that it also implies like there's more to come here, like more shoes to drop, or um, this is more just like a, like a bear market rally? Um, what do you think? You know, Julia, if I, I had to guess, and it's just a guess, I, I would guess something that it would go something like this, that you'll get to a point here between now and mid-year where people will say, well, gosh, I didn't think it was going to get this bad in the economy. I'm going to, I'm going to sell some now. And I think that's what's going to fool them. I think they've hung on to this idea that, you know, the Fed's going to bail us out. And as soon as times get poor, you know, everything will be back to normal again, normal being, you know, quarter of one interest rates, that sort of thing. We don't think that happens. I think they in one respect, we think they sober up about sometime in the next six months and realize that, you know what? We really are going to have lower earnings. So boom, I think I'll sell some stuff. Maybe not work that way, but I, I could see it happening that way. So that would be the, would that be like the capitulation? Because we really didn't see um, capitulation. Or some folks I've talked to, they said we haven't seen it yet. Well, the reason we know we haven't seen it is because we have a lot of new money comes in all the time. And, and when you bring those accounts and you look at them and they're still fully invested in things and and you and we find generally, if I just ask people, even people we don't do business with, their general ideal was, you know, well, it was a bad year, but, you know, I had two good years in 20 and 21. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking we'll be OK. All right. See, that's what happens when you're only down 20%. But if you got down 40, <laughs> then you're like, you know what? Uh, I can't take it anymore. It's sort of that. In other words, you switch into a different mode. We'll see if that happens that way. But we never got the fear. We never got, um, you know, we're around too many money managers, too many people. And we never got in a situation where people said, hey, you know, take me out. Um, it just never came. And I do still think that they believe that you know, hey, the Fed, this is just a short-term phenomenon and the Fed will come in and take care of us. We'll be just fine. Uh, yeah, anticipation of what the, we'll, we'll see this movie play out again or the Fed, the Fed will pivot, cut, and uh, everything will rise again. I, I, yeah. Um, well, we always say to people, look, before you pivot, before you pivot, you have to stop raising rates. <laughs> and they haven't stopped raising rates yet. And yeah. usually you go through a long period, you know, quite a long period of not lowering rates, just doing nothing. Yeah. You don't just come in and raise rates this month and then start lowering them next month, uh, unless something really unusual happens. So, you know, we'll 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 see how it plays out. I, I again I think people I tell people this, but let's just say that let's just say the markets, kind of overall markets, not the Nasdaq, but the overall markets are up maybe six, seven percent this year. Well, I'm I'm getting four and three quarters on a one-year treasury. So why why press it right now? Why not just give it some time and see how this thing works out over the next three or four or five months? And you know, if you get a shot, a good shot, then you've got liquidity. And if something changes and it looks like you're in a brand new, and you can tell if you're in a brand new bull market, uh, 
I doubt it, but it, it happens. Then, you know, you've always got to, bull markets won't leave you in a month. You know, they're going to last longer than that. So um, people have to keep that in mind. In the event that like the Fed not only pauses, but in the event that there's a pause and then maybe at some point a cut, couldn't that sig- could couldn't that be viewed as like not a, necessarily a good thing if they cut? Meaning, couldn't that imply that we're in some serious trouble? Well, you've done your history there, Julia, because that's what happens a lot of times when they cut, the market actually goes lower. And because they're scared, there's something wrong, you know, and they can see it. They can see that, hey, there's we've got problems here. And so uh, that's, that's just true. You know, you can have it. You don't have to have it, but you can certainly have it. We've had it numerous times, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in your big picture macro view that you laid out, you did bring up um, the the debt and the debt situation. Can we um, flush that out a bit and how you're thinking about um, the debt situation here? Well, I, I think the biggest thing people probably don't realize is they forget what the federal government pays an interest on their bonds, you know, that are outstanding. In other words, they borrowed a lot of money and a lot of that's floating. If you look at uh, the U.S. debt uh, that they owe, a lot of it comes due in the one and two years, and certainly a whole lot of it in one, two, and three. So if rates stay reasonably high, their borrowing costs are really going to go up a lot, okay? And same way for companies and same way for people, and it really changes the atmosphere. I mean, if you look at multifamily housing, and we like real estate, by the way, a lot, but if you look at real estate today, uh, when you put, when you go out today, we have a seven and three quarter percent prime rate. And by March, end of March, we'll probably have an 8%. When you take that, and even if you get a discount to that, and you're, you're, you're doing multifamily out here at, at say six or six and a half, it's really hard to make the numbers work when you were doing it before at three. And so, all of a sudden, everything changes for you, not just in our business, but every other business as well. If I'm doing short-term borrowing at a private company and I'm down at the bank and they're saying, hey, you know, we're prime plus one now, so we're eight and three quarters. You know, that you you better be making quite a bit of money if you're paying almost 9% on the cost. And, that, and that's where we are right now. Yeah. What, what do you think some of the implications of that could be if we get there? Well, you're going to see two things happen, I think, uh, for sure, Julia. You're seeing it now. People are moving money out of the banks because they, they're they realizing that the banks are on a free ride here. I hate to say it because I own one of the best banks there is, part of one. I'm not a, the largest owner, but but I'm certainly uh, I'm, I'm proud of our bank. But but one of the things that happens to banks is they've, they, they've had sort of a free ride in here in terms of oh, when the rates were all low, they could be low, too and nobody made any more money anywhere else. But all of a sudden, now the treasury rate goes way up and people are, are starting to notice. And so they're moving money out of all the banks. All the banks are losing liquidity, that's one. Secondly, on the loan side, it's just starting to catch up now. But what happens is those people that came in and said, you know, uh, I was gonna buy a new piece of equipment, but I think at eight and three quarters or 9%, I think I'll wait a year on that or I'll, I'll do something different. You see how it all filters in together. And maybe when the loan comes up where normally they might renew it and go out another three years or five years, they if they've got the cash, they may just pay it off because they probably can't earn eight and a half or 
in the stock market right now. So they'll look at that and say, you know, I think I'll just pay it off. Yeah. And that's, like, what, that's the implications from that. Okay. So you mentioned that you like, you like real estate. There are a lot of different facets of real estate. Like maybe, okay, I'll just start with, um, well, this is just, I'll just hear your, your views on real estate and then maybe we can start to zoom in on the different parts of it. Well, one of the things I think about real estate, it is a real asset. In other words, uh, to a, to a, to a, to a reasonable degree, not always, but to a reasonable degree, it, it, it helps with inflation because you can, you can always adjust rents and you can do things like that. And I'm not, we're not as big on what we call dirt project, which is, you know, ground up. Uh, but we certainly like projects that cash flow. If you look at, you know, multifamily housing, you look at, uh, uh, you know, look at certain commercial buildings, not all of them, but certain ones, and even a few strip centers where they really have great tenants and you can make it work. Real estate is the only thing left today that has all the tax benefits that never get touched. They never touch it. I mean, I, I've watched it over the years. Every tax bill that comes through, real estate is a free ride. And so, you need to think about that because there that is an industry that um, can produce cash flow without having to pay a lot of tax on it because of everything that goes into it. And a lot of people like this. It's a real asset. You can go out and kick it, open the door, you can paint it, you can do anything you want to to it. But um, And it's interesting about real estate with investors. And we have a lot of investors that have real estate and we put money into real estate. But it's interesting if a building across the street from you and you own the same rough building and it, for some reason, they sell it for 10, 15, 20% less than, than you think your building's worth. Um, nobody ever steps in like they do with stock and say, well, I got to get out. They just keep right on going. See, and that's the difference between real estate. Real estate only gets bad when the borrowing costs get so high that the people that are leveraged, which a lot of them are now, get in trouble and they have to come in and sell into the marketplace. And that hurts the people that aren't leveraged because the prices come off. It's only a short-term phenomenon, a year, a few, you know, a few years, but, but it does happen, but, uh, but it's a, but it's a good investment because it has everything behind you. Yeah. Okay. How about, um, how about housing? Do you focus much on housing or do you have thoughts there? You know, uh, Julia, we don't focus much on housing. I, I'm not saying that there's, I mean, I have a couple of friends of mine that have thousands of houses and um, and they've done really well with it. It's just, to me, it's a, it's a fairly high capital intensive build, business in terms of, you know, having to take care of all, do all this. It's, it's a different kind of business. It's not something um, I don't think we would be interested in. And I think for the individual, a house is a home. And so you got to determine that. And if your house is your home, you shouldn't be looking at it like, well, I'm, I made a lot of money on this house. Well, are you going to, are you moving? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, and so I think that's where people get confused on owning their home. And by the way, for the average person in the U S you know, that was a big thing for them. By the time you got to the end of 21, if you just added their home and therefore just the average person and the 401k and everything, they were at all time highs on everything. And so they were feeling really good. Uh, not so much now, but that's what it was then. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have a house yet. <laughs> Hopefully soon. Um, I hope it's still, hope there's still like a decent window uh, to get in. At some there will point. be. I, I think people, 
forget about the windows. You know, I, I think it's okay not to have a house right now. I think you, you, you probably get better buys, you know, in the next year or two more than likely. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Cause, um, I, there are some neighborhoods I am absolutely in love with, uh, that I would love to get into at some point. Um, I want to just kind of go back there, like to the, we were just talking about like the debt situation and, and some of the implications there, like, um, how about just like as a country, like our, our debt situation. And I know a lot of other countries have, um, problems too. Like I've heard of it described, like I've heard it described like that. We are like the cleanest shirt and like the dirty laundry pile but do you do you focus much like do you think about like the the big picture debt situation here in the U.S. do you think it will ever get resolved or do you think at some point like it'll be like a serious problem that we're going to have to deal with well I'll tell you the only time Julia that we're like today okay if you go back and look at the numbers where it was right after around 31 1931 32 we had uh total debt in the U.S., I'm talking about corporations, mortgage, everything, everything, was roughly 380 or 90% to GDP, okay? Uh, we're close to the same today, you know, 375% or so. And usually the way that gets resolved, we had a really high number after the war in 1944. And what happened was, if you look at the period after mid-40s up until, say, the late 50s, what we really did is we were always inflating a little bit more than the interest rates. And we basically inflated it away. We went from a really high, you know, debt to GDP as far as government debt, you know, say take from a hundred points down to maybe 35. And we did, it wasn't because of anything other than the fact, if you go back and look at the numbers, we were always inflating a little bit more than the interest rate. And um, that's what gets you there. Uh, and I think, Probably, if there's any way out, I think that's what we'll do at this time, too. Okay. So, like, inflating a little bit more than the interest rate, does that mean, like, like, like some inflation is, like, a good thing, too? Like, there is that it's not necessarily, I, I don't know, maybe that's a totally off question, but I'm just thinking, like, you almost need, you need some inflation, right? To well, you do want, yeah, you want some. I think, I think people fail to realize, though, that the only way a government gets rid of that much debt okay they can default on it and just say we're not going to pay it they can do that makes it harder for trade after that but they can do it after that they can inflate it away for sure and they can make their currency such that you know if i let's just say let's say i triple the amount of currency that we have and think about it like this but i'm only paying from what the currency was before i tripled so I can take a lot of that currency and pay out of the debt and still be where I am. And so that could happen as well. But I, you know, I don't know which way we end up going, but we'll do something probably. Mm -hmm. um, and then going back, um, and sorry to like jump all over the place. I, just, I took a bunch of notes and I want to like make sure we cover this too. Sure. But going back like um, to just how you all are positioned, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, like it's a bit more like defensive positioning because like you have, you said you're 50% um liquidity at this point can you kind of like i don't know like how much you can give away i don't want you to have to like give away everything but um you know like what is what's interesting to you or what are the opportunities that you're seeing right now that make sense um what what can you share there well most of our uh liquidity 
I will tell you, it's not just sitting in cash. And we're getting, you know, anywhere from four and four and four sixty to four eighty on the on that. And it's either in a floating rate US Treasury, which adjusts to the 90-day rate every week, or a one year or a two year. And uh, so so we're earning money on it. It's not like we're not uh, getting money on that. And it's there to use if we if we find something. Uh, two of the three strategies we have gold. We think gold will continue to do well this year. It did pretty well last year if you consider everything else. And so we have a position uh, in regular gold, the bullion, in two portfolios. And then another portfolio, we have the gold miners, which are still really cheap today. We think you can buy the, the gold miners uh, and, and do well with those this year. Their price to cash flow is very low on a company on a historical basis right now. And those companies, um, we think, and if you look at buying of gold by, by say, central banks, they had the biggest year in 22. They've had, oh gosh, you got to go back 40 years or something. It's huge uh, how much gold they bought. We think they'll continue to buy gold. I don't, I think they're, with what happened with what the president did with uh, Russia, which was freeze those assets, that changed the game with gold because people are looking at it and saying, you know, well, he could freeze ours too. If I'm China, India, Saudi, you know, so that's changed their opinion. So gold and gold miners look good to us. Energy, obviously, we own, and there's a lot of ways to be in energy and make a lot of cash flow too. People don't realize you can own the royalty companies and get great cash flows, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent. You can own the pipelines, gas pipelines, um, and get eight, eight and a half percent, nine percent, and that's tax deferred. Um, in that that respect. And then we own, you know, on the on the other side, the stock side, you know, you can own things that don't get hurt with debt. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you own, we own Visa and MasterCard. Okay. If you inflate and you have more inflatable dollars, think about it. Then when you use your cards, you're actually using them more because the amount's higher, right? And if you go look at the debt structures of those two companies, Literally, they could if they wanted to just take the cash flow. They could most both of those companies could probably pay off all the debt in six months. Their debt, I mean, their margins are huge. They're like sixty percent margins. People don't realize in those two companies, and so yeah, they didn't they didn't get hurt a lot. They went up a little bit here, and they've gone up some this year. But they're the kind of companies that'll get you past the valley here. You know that type of thing. Healthcare, same way. You know, you look at Humana, United Health. O'Reilly Automotive, people, you know, when cars get expensive, they keep, they start going to the auto parts companies. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of things you look at preferred stocks. And I would recommend people really take a look at preferred stocks because they got cheap. And I'll give you an example. If I have, there's something in preferred stocks called a qualified dividend. That means that not all of them are like that, but a number of them are. And that qualified dividend means you don't pay ordinary income like you do on a lot of preferreds. You pay the you pay the capital gains rate, which if you're in a high bracket is 20% plus the 3.8. And if you think about it like that, and I'm getting 630, 640 on a on a preferred, even after tax, okay, I'm getting, I'm still getting, I'm still getting close to 5% or 4.8, 4.85, which I cannot get in a tax-free bond right now. Like I can't get that on a 20 or 30 year tax-free bond. And so that's a really great place to be too. Those 
those will work, I think, well over the next. And so the convertibles work well, convertible bonds, convertible preferreds. Um, a lot of things you can do. I mean, it's just a different atmosphere than normal. But on gross stocks, you know, they're, they, they, they bounce and everything. But I, I think they're too early to say, hey, we're off into a new bull market on this stuff. Got it. Um, okay. Uh, and that was, a, again, uh, more great stuff in there. I want to go back to this gold thing because that was interesting. You mentioned like central banks buying gold, like rec record um, record quantities of gold um, uh, recently. That's an interesting point because it's like probably tells you something too, like what the central banks are thinking, right? About like inflation. If they're kind of, they're buying it, maybe that's interesting for me. Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, uh, and I'll go back to this. But I think the other part of it is Really, uh, if you think about it like this, okay, and I'm using all these other countries, for example, and you probably, if you haven't, you probably read up on this, but um, there's a there's a thing going on called cross-border decentralized finance. And it's basically Russia, China, India, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, the BRICS all coming together and saying, hey, we're going to create something that's a non-dollar trade entity. In other words, uh, we'll have a currency that's, not the dollar because because think about it. if I'm a country and all of a sudden I'm thinking well you froze the reserves of Russia well I'm going to try to do something where you can't do that to me all right well you can't freeze gold because I own it <laughs> number one and number two if we have a currency that's not wrapped around that I could see the countries using gold as a backup to them and that's not to say some of these others may not go up too. I mean, you may get a move in some of the, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. I, I don't know. We don't own that stuff. So I can't tell you that. But I do think, I do think there's been a change and that uh, there's a lot of gold buying and not a lot of gold production. That's one of the things. I, and a lot of people will tell you, hey, gold is a thing of the past, blah, blah, blah. And I know I hear it all the time. But if you go back to 2000 till now, gold's been the number one performing asset. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Um, wait, real quick though, like, cause I think probably do, you, you're not in crypto. Um, you don't have a position there, but do you have like thoughts on crypto or Bitcoin? Some folks have kind of likened Bitcoin specifically to like a digital gold. I understand what they're saying. I really do. I understand uh, what the, what the thought process is there is that we want something that's not controlled uh, and can't be looked at all the time by governments. And and, and we have a controlled, uh, if they want to, I don't call it a currency because it's too volatile, but I do understand the thought process there. I think, unfortunately, um, if you look at the uh, 8,800 either coins or, or, or coining exchanges, et cetera, that are out there, there's probably only 10 of them that are viable. And if, if, if anything's going to be viable, so a lot of people, I think, will lose a lot of money. It's been an unregulated uh, industry that unfortunately has been just, they just didn't do anything with it. It was non-regulated. You could do you could do a Wild West type stuff as far as raising money and bringing people in and front running and insider trading, all of that stuff for that you know, is out there. And uh, I think one of the problems with it will be if you get into uh you know, the differences between, you know, I understand uh, difference in Bitcoin and Ethereum, proof of work, proof of, you know, that proof of stake, that sort of thing. I understand that. 
but I think the average person is going to have a real hard time understanding it. And um, it'll be hard for them to do. But uh, I, I would imagine probably, Julia, that's, that some of the some of those will, 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 will get to the other side. Yeah, I think they will. But just not something we do, because if something doesn't, you know, like for gold, for example, it doesn't cash flow. Now, the miners cash flow. So that's why we have um, some gold, but not a ton because it doesn't cash flow. And then we have miners on top of that. But you know, you don't get any cash flow particularly um, yeah. out of the coins. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the cash flow part. Also, just like when we talk about um, like cryptocurrencies, for example, it's that to me. Like when you mentioned um, early in the conversation about like how we're coming off this super bubble. Well. I would think like cryptocurrencies, for example, very emblematic of that. Um, can you kind of explain to me uh, the super bubble thought there, like the thoughts on the super bubble coming off of that and what a more normalized investing environment um, looks like in your view? Well, I think I think you can see it today in the marketplace with everybody that's back into the MEM stocks. And you know this the options market now, where half the market is one or one day, you know, options that expire. Then what what's happening is the the uh, what I would call a very very speculative fever is still there. It, it we thought it would go away after last year because a lot of people got beat up in a lot of areas, but it really didn't. Um, it's still there. So I think you have to keep on ringing it out to where people finally get to the point to where they say, you know, I, I, that was. That was another time. And um, see, I've been around before to see uh, Cabbage Patch dolls at uh, $3,000 a piece and Beanie Babies at 50000 and that sort of thing. And I often wonder where those are today, if they're up on a shelf somewhere or something happened, <laughs> because you see these fads, they come along. Okay, they do. Okay. And they last a while. And people, the early people do well in them. Um, but they go away eventually because there's nothing underneath them. And I think that still has to go. I think we're, I don't think we're at a point where you're back to normal investing should be something on the order. If I put in money today, okay, what kind of cash flow can I expect? Where do I think this company or this business or this piece of real estate will be five years from now? What, what is that? Okay. And, and that's where I think we have to get back to. Yeah. Um, you know, Ted, it's been so great having you on the show. And, you know, one of the reasons, um, I reached out to you, I, I listened to a podcast that you did, uh, with Liz Clayman and I was really touched by like your, your own personal story. And I think also it kind of probably ties into like your philosophy on investing and, um, also just some of the incredible work that you do within your own community. And if you don't mind, um, would you be willing to share like your background, um, with the folks who are watching and listening? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't mind at all. I, I, I don't think I'm honestly, Julie, I don't think I'm that rare. I know a lot of successful people that had really tough backgrounds. I mean, and I've always learned from them and I try to find out how they did it and what went on with them. And, and some of them had much worse than I did, but I grew up very poor. I had a, um, you know, we were hillbillies really. Um, and back in the, in the, very, very Southern North Carolina, Northern Georgia. And uh, it was back then, you know, we didn't have running water. We didn't have, we had an outhouse. We only had a 
sort of a two-bedroom shack. But, you know, it was a different life. Um, I think people and, and everybody learns from their life some form or another. But um, I was a poor life and, and really a, a, an uneducated uh, an uneducated atmosphere, you know, from, from a family standpoint. I think the only book or two books we had in my in my house were the Bible and maybe a, another version of the Bible. Um, and so I had to educate myself, which I think everybody has needs to do. All right. I think that's what gets you out. And so, um, I, I use that in my own life in terms of, uh, helping foster kids. We, we, uh, I've started really the two largest foster child foundations in Texas. And we help between the two of them, probably eight to 10,000 kids a year, depending on the year. But the whole, and the key for me there is if I could educate a lot of those kids, um, maybe they win. Maybe we can get them out of that, you know, because you could get them educated and then you, you know, they go on to um, do well in the world. And I've always said, I really personally would never want my name on a building or anything, but I would love to have my name on the back of all of the kids I'd help a hundred years from now, sort of a legacy of life kind of thing. Um, because I love to see them do well and, and go on. You, can, you can't help them all. There's no question about that. And every state has a lot. Uh, it doesn't make it matter which state you're in. Uh, but, but that's how I really tried to push it back. And, you know, uh, everybody does it a different way, but Gosh, I've, I've talked to so many business owners over the years that were successful that um, they had it tough. You know, they came from some of them a harder life than I ever had, for sure. So I'm, I'm, I know it's out there, and I always try to tell people like you, you can get, you can get ahead. You just need to, uh, you need to stay with it. You know, and get educated. Yeah, and I think it's important to tell those stories too. And I've interviewed many folks over the years who've had you know tough upbringings too, and have gone on to achieve incredible levels of success, but more importantly, um, really investing in their communities and like the, the work you do with uh, foster children is really incredible. And, um, you know, maybe as we wrap this up, I'd love to give you a few minutes um, to share, you know, some parting thoughts, maybe some things that we didn't bring up in the conversation that are top of mind for you. Also let folks know where they can find you, your firm, learn more about your firm. And also if you want to share more about the uh, work um, that folks uh, might be able to contribute uh, with the the work that you do with foster children. Uh, please uh, take a moment to do that as well. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, first of all, on the foster kids, both of our foundations are called Foster Angels. There's a Foster Angels of Central Texas. It's almost 30 counties, and there are Foster Angels of South Texas, which is probably 31 or 32 counties, and um, help a lot of kids in those. And you know, one of the things I like about our foundation, we set it up that way, by the way. It's 501c3 too. It's not, it's not a private foundation. But one of the things I've always had a trouble with in some things that raise money is, you know, 50, 75% of it goes upstairs and it doesn't really get to what you want it to. Well, all of ours goes to the kids, and which is what we really want to do. But that's where that is. Um, our company is, you know, we have a great website, it's just oxbowadvisors.com. And we have all sorts of things in there. We've written, you know, there's, I think I have nine books in there and you can get a copy. We'll give it to you. Um, and it talks about everything we do, really the systems we have, the what what our processes are, what our strategies are, that sort of thing. And when, you know, we're not for everybody. I, I know that. Uh, but if you have a, 
if you have a fairly uh, conservative bent, you're, you're, you're preservation of capital oriented, then you would have an interest in, in what we do because we're not going to be uh, quants or hedge funds or any of that kind of thing. We're real basic. Um, but people like it over the years because we've done it a long time. Uh, they like it. They like common sense. Um, and then last thing I'd say, I, you know, I, I look at a lot of young people that are either in the business or starting to look at the business and that kind of thing. And I, you know, I always try to give them a little piece of advice, which is be careful of your own bias. One of the things, the hardest thing to overcome in investing is your own bias. I don't care if you're an individual or us as professionals, you have a tendency to be biased to something, whatever it is. And personal story, by the way, my bias was to hold on to every penny I ever had because that's never, I never had any. But by the time I was 40, I got rid of that. And it took some time and some talking to a lot of people, but I was able to do that, okay? Because your biases will take you in different directions. Some people's bias is to spend everything. I don't care how much money they have. You know, and then some people want to save it all for the kids. I mean, there's all kinds of bias. I'm getting ready to have a new book come out um, and entitled A Balanced Portfolio, which is basically your, your ticket to a peace of mind. And uh, I think people forget that today. You know, uh, the idea, the idea about investing is to have your money be able to buy 10 years from now the same thing it would buy today. That's the deal. Nothing more than that. All right. You're going to make, you know, everything's going to go on. But if you can buy the same thing 10 years from now that you can today with, with your money then, then you won the battle, you know, and it's, it's really what it is uh, when it gets right down to it. So, um, anytime they have a question, you know, there's a lot of things on there. They can see that on the website, but Julia, uh, uh, they can get everything. They get everything there. I think Ted Oakley founder and managing partner of Oxbow advisors. I thank you so much for being so generous with your time, your ideas, um, as well as your wisdom and just an overall incredible conversation. Really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Ted Oakley. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.